Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast Podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is an important part of the scriptures. It holds some of the most memorable accounts in the entire Bible, like the story of creation and the calling of Abraham. But more important than the individual stories within it, this book marks the beginning of God's magnificent plan of redemption for a lost humanity. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. our study in Genesis chapter 46. So if you would turn there to Genesis 46, and again, I just want to thank Mike Carroll for teaching last week on such short notice, and um, I shared with him, it's just, it was a really great tie-in, and I'll talk a little bit about that tonight, as he taught more of a devotion from First Peter, and uh, I really appreciated it, so... Uh, if you are, <clears throat> how many people have been following any of the election stuff? Maybe a few of you, yeah. And one of the things I really appreciated on Sunday when Pastor Ryan uh, was preparing to teach was reminding us that our hope is not in politics or politicians, right? And... If there's anything that we might glean from these later chapters of Genesis, even from two weeks ago when we went through four chapters, chapter 42 through 45, is that we must consistently, persistently fix our eyes on the hope that we have in God, and for us as New Testament, New Testament believers, through Christ. Amen? That uh, no matter how this whole thing shakes out, there is still one who is on the throne and is supervising all the details that we may look at it and go, ah, what the heck is going on? So as we continue to look at Genesis, I think some of that will come out. So two weeks ago, as I mentioned, we studied through chapters 42 through 45, and in those chapters, we saw the unfolding of God's plan to preserve or protect his people, Israel. Um, is Israel, also known as Jacob, so you're kind of seeing some of the um, transitioning back and forth between that term Israel and Jacob, but his family. And it's through this group of 70 people that now enter into G Egypt that God is going to establish his nation, the nation Israel. And in that historical account, the brothers of Joseph travel to Egypt to buy grain for their families to stave off uh, the famine, to, to make it through the famine, not knowing what their brother Joseph already knew that the famine was going to extend for several more years. They think this trip to Egypt is merely just to pick up some food, but they discover in the process, as we learned, that God had a much greater purpose, not only in their trip to Egypt, but all the events that led up to that to include them unjustly selling their brother Joseph into slavery. 
Because God's purpose from the very beginning was to bring about reconciliation, not only within this family to save them, but also to prepare them for his promised plan of making them into a great nation. Is it kind of ringing or is it just in my ears? Okay, it's just in my ears. All right. Um, so this was what was happening there in Genesis chapters 42 through 45 was a test of character. The character of Joseph as one who was unjustly treated, but also the character of his brothers who were, quite frankly, very dishonest men, though they proclaimed to Joseph that they were indeed honest men. And we kind of chuckled about that. They're proclaiming to be honest men, but they know the truth of their own hearts. The question is, would they be honest about their sins? And would Joseph be a gracious and compassionate man? Because up to this point, Joseph has held the ground that God had commanded him to hold, in essence, through the testimony that he had seen in his own father's life, albeit at times broken, dysfunctional, but also his grandfather and his great-grandfather through Abraham, Isaac, and then his father Jacob. The testimony of God and how trusting God prepares you to live justly in this world, to live with compassion and grace, but also to not only endure difficulties and hardships, but rather also to thrive. And so he implements his faith into this crazy circumstance, and it produces godly fruit in his life and in the lives of others. But the question is, would he be a man of grace and compassion, and would his brothers be honest? And we talked about Luke chapter 12, verse 2. Uh, where it says, but there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be made known. Also, Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows that he shall reap. So there was a price to be paid for all the sin that was happening, the brokenness, even with this, in this family, and that bill was coming due finally. So for as we looked at it, as we think about that, as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, God does not want us to be held captive by sin, to live with that burden day after day, rather that we would, how often? Daily confess to him, daily take up our cross, put to death our own desires, our own selfishness, our own will, and follow him and discover real freedom. And if we won't do that as his kids... He says he promises that he will discipline us. And better to choose it, right? Better to choose freely. Say, Lord, I come to you uh, humbly and acknowledging my sin before you than to have God humble you as what, as what happened with Joseph's brothers. They, they ate, ate a lot of humble pie <laughs> um, during their time there. Because there is always a price to be paid for sin, isn't there? There's no such thing as a victimless sin. It impacts me. We talked about that impacts me, we that we sin, but it also immediately impacts others because it impacts us and changes how we relate to one another. And just in simple ways, our, our attitudes, how we might be a little short and prickly with people because we know that there's something not right in our own lives. 
For the believer, there is grace and forgiveness. But for the non-believer, there is merely judgment and punishment. And again, this is uh, part of the picture that is displayed here for us in the life of the baker and the cupbearer. Well, the results of the tests in chapter 42 through 44 is finally the admission of sin on the brother's part. They acknowledge their sin, and, and it's, it's all just coming out. It's leaking out of them. And then there's this tearful and compassionate response from Joseph where he, he just commands everyone to go out of his, the, the, the room there, and he reveals himself to his brothers. And in that... That begins the restoration, and uh, this is how God wants us to come to Him. It is with broken and contrite hearts, right? He says, because when we do, He says, He will not despise us or reject us. When we come to Him and say, Lord, I have really messed this up. I've really made a mess of things. And that is the foreshadowing, the imagery that we see in Joseph's life is... The foreshadowing of Christ, who was gracious and compassionate, though unjustly accused and wronged. What we discover in the process, that process of sanctification, that process where we, whereby God changes us and is transforming us, but when we come to that place of humility and brokenness, what we discover, just as Joseph's brothers discovered, is that we find a Lord and a master who is gracious, long-suffering, and more than willing and able to forgive us. Are you glad? Are you glad that you don't have to wonder if God is going to forgive you when you come to him? Honestly, transparently, taking responsibility that he is faithful to forgive us of all unrighteousness. So it's been about 23 years since Joseph was sold into slavery, and now it is just now that the plan of God is being revealed. As Joseph said, you know, you meant this for evil, but God sent me here. He clears the slate for everyone, tries to make it as clear as possible. And again, his brothers still are going to have a hard time really believing it as we finish up the book in, in another couple of weeks. But he really tries to clean, clear the slate and say, listen, you meant this for evil, but I just want to tell you, God sent me here, not you. You didn't sell me into slavery. Yeah, you did, but God did it for a purpose. That I, that I would be the agent of preservation, the salvation for our people. And as we talked about it a few weeks ago, God wastes nothing, right? Nothing is waste by God. No matter how difficult of a circumstance, no matter how unpleasant or unreasonable, our lack of understanding regarding the circumstances, God is still using every bit of our life for our good, to grow closer to him, and for his glory, for people to see the glory and majesty of God in our lives. From generation past to the present day, believers and unbelievers alike have been confused by the tragic events of their times, often un unable to see how God might use them. 
And again, I, you know, I point to our current circumstances that someone might say, well, you know, the world's falling apart. We had our great hopes that there was going to be, you know, this red wave and um, we were going to take back our country. And, you know, you can really get stuck on that. But again, who is our hope in? Who are we trusting? This record of Joseph's life serves to remind us to look for the truth God is trying to reveal in our circumstances. The lesson or lessons he's trying to teach us through adversity. And this is what I'm trying to do myself. And, you know, I hope that you'll join with me in prayerfully considering, Lord, as we look at our current world situation, our nation, our state, our communities, what is it as believers that God wants us to learn and then apply? I think we could safely say that we need to stand up for the truth. We need to be unashamed of our faith in Him and our hope in Him. But what are the things is God trying to teach us individually? And also asking the question, am I content with the truth? Is the truth enough for me? Because for certain, I won't understand everything, all of life's twists and turns. I'm just not going to comprehend everything that's going on because I have a limited understanding. We all have a limited understanding. I've, I've quoted it before from Isaiah chapter 40. His ways at times are inscrutable. We cannot comprehend them. But in that event, what I do know about God, the truth, is that enough? Because that is what's been sustaining Joseph for 23 years, is the truth about God and his character and nature. So that brings me kind of really, this is all introduction, by the way. We haven't even got a chapter 46. <laughs> Which really brings me to last week because I really appreciated what Mike taught um, regarding First Peter. And chapter 1, and specifically verse 13, where he kind of anchored his devotion last week and, and reminded us how God weaves his story of grace and salvation throughout the Old and New Testament. You, you have likely heard this before, but I'll still say it again. It's been said that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So whenever we look at the Old Testament, we ought to be asking the question, what has been concealed or perhaps hidden a bit regarding Christ? Because everything points us to the salvation that was expected through Christ. And we're going to, again, see that tonight in chapter 46. As Mike mentioned last week, if we are recalling all has God, God has done for us and he walked us through you know, those first 12 verses leading up to chapter, verse 13 of 1 Peter 1. If we remember the blessing and gift of salvation that purchased us really at an unimaginable cost. If we remember that with salvation we're also given an, an imperishable inheritance reserved in heaven and we are presently protected by the power of God through His Spirit until that inheritance is realized, 
then we should greatly rejoice even amidst trials or difficulties. And furthermore, the truth of this knowledge ought to remind us, and I like the vernacular that, that uh, Mike used, you know, that, that coach yelling from the sideline to the player that's not all with it and saying, Is your, get your head in the game. As we used to say in the, in the army, you know, ruck up, get your gear on, get ready. God has a plan for us. He wants to use us, and he's purchased us for that very reason, to use us. He's equipped us for those purposes, and we ought to find great joy, even, as, even if it's difficult. We ought to prepare our hearts and minds for actions that are consistent by the name by which we are called, to be holy even as Christ is holy. <coughs> so this was the testimony of Jesus's li- or Joseph's life. Excuse me. To be sure, he was not perfect. I hope we don't elevate some of our fellow saints in the Old Testament (coughs) or even the New Testament to this point that we can't relate to them. The reality is, though, almost nothing is written regarding Joseph's struggles. We can know for certain he was a human being and in those moments, in, in, the, in, in slavery in Potiphar's house, in the, in the prison under Potiphar's management, he had some bad days. But he was consistent in his trust, in his faith in the Lord. And his actions revealed that. He believed God and trusted him despite the lack of understanding regarding the conclusion of God's plan and purpose. He didn't know how this was all going to work out. In fact, he asked um, the cupbearer, hey, when you get to Pharaoh, just remember me. You know, speak about me like I'm unjustly in this prison. He was still looking for a way out. But he continued to act faithfully. But in all of this, God's purposes and plans did not stop. The reality for Jacob, for Israel, and his descendants is that God was preparing them to withstand a greater trial, which had been prophesied much earlier through Abraham, and to experience a greater salvation. And today, God may be doing that with you and I, preparing us for a greater trial, and yes, for the fulfillment of our long-awaited permanent salvation. Freedom from sin, from death, from sorrow. To spend eternity with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the safety and care there in heaven. So let's pick up now in chapter 46. Again, we'll just kind of read along and we'll talk about it a bit. Verse 1, so Israel set out, again, this is Jacob, with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And he said, I am the God, the go- I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt. 
and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. So what was significant about Beersheba as we've been studying through Genesis, just a little bit of it, it's become this memorial place. It, what I mean by that is that it's, it's a place of remembrance within his family, specifically a remembrance of God's promises and of his faithfulness. In Genesis chapter 21, we saw Abraham, he makes a treaty with Abimelech after a horrible failure in his life. You know, you know the story, he goes down to, to Egypt uh, during a famine, uh, passes off Sarah as his sister, which was a half-truth but an all-lie, <laughs> and nearly loses everything, but God blesses him. God is merciful and gracious to him, and he leaves there with tremendous amount of blessings. He goes and he, he is greatly successful to the point that now Abimelech comes to him years later and says, hey, you've become very powerful and influential. Let's make a treaty, you and I. And so they meet there at Beersheba, and they make this oath, this treaty that Abimelech said, you know, that you would treat kindly to me and all my descendants. And this is where it comes, the name comes from, is, is from an oath or the place of sevens, because later on it would be the place where seven lambs were offered in this, this treaty, but also it's uh, a location of wells, seven wells that were dug near there. <clears throat> God protected Abraham from his own foolishness. So Genesis 21, it says, At that time Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, and said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me by God that you will not deal false with, falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal kindly with me in the land where you have sojourned. So again, there was a second treaty after that. In Genesis 26, due to a famine, Abraham's son Isaac would also reside near Beersheba, he too would call upon the name of the Lord, and the Lord would reaffirm the covenant that he had made with Abraham. He now makes this with Isaac. Regarding a multitude of descendants, a future inheritance in the land, and once again, he would also make a treaty with Abimelech, a similar treaty as was made with Abraham. Isaac departs for Egypt, he once again desires to remember the faithfulness of God, of the Lord's protection and preservation. Why? Not, I'm sorry, not Isaac, Israel, Jacob. Why does Jacob now stop at Beersheba? Well, perhaps it's because he did recall his grandfather Abraham's trip to Egypt and his lack of faith. Or perhaps he remembered God told his father Isaac in Genesis 26, not to go to Egypt. Don't go down there. It's not a place for you. Or he may have remembered Genesis 28, and the last time he left the, the promised land, God appeared to him to comfort him and pass along again the covenant given to his father. But for whatever reason, Jacob now seeks the assurance and comfort of the Lord, and he finds it. Because God is in the business of relieving anxieties when we come to him. Do we understand that? 
God is in the business of relieving our anxieties when we come to him in honesty and transparency and with humility and say, God, I just, I'm just looking for you. I'm looking for your assurance because what I'm faced with seems bigger than I can imagine. Egypt, going to Egypt was no small thing despite the invitation of his supposedly dead son coupled with the invitation from the Pharaoh himself, Egypt was not known to be a place of safety. They consumed other nations. But he goes, he pauses, and he looks for assurance from God. And this is a good lesson for you and I to learn. When in doubt, when we have fear and anxiety in our lives, and anxiety attempts to rule our our decision-making process, our hearts and minds, we should pause and return to what we know is true. As I asked the earlier question, is the truth enough? Can we look at the character and nature of the Lord as we have seen him demonstrate in our lives and in the lives of others and through his word and say, I just got to return to what I know to find a center. When we do this, we'll find him waiting there to direct us. I, I loved um, an, another teaching by Mike Carroll some time back uh, <clears throat> regarding prayer when we were going through a, a brief period um, during the summer, a series on prayer. And he says... When we go to that secret place, talked about referring to prayer that we ought to go in, in secret and private and pray to our Lord in private. When we go to that secret place, what we find is God waiting there for us. It, it's not like he's saying, go meet with me in secret, but I'll get to you when I can. No, he is waiting there for us. In fact, that's his great, heart, his great heart's desire is to meet with us, isn't it? So when we come to that place, like, I just need, I need to know that I'm headed in the right direction. He says he will give us wisdom and understanding. We will find him waiting to direct us, encourage us, and comfort us. And this ought to remind us of what Jesus said in John chapter 14. As his disciples there, they've just left the upper room. They were hearing Jesus talk about being betrayed, and also the fact that Peter, the strong guy of the group, was going to deny Jesus, this caused no small amount of concern and anxiety in their lives to the point that Jesus says there in chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, do not let your hearts be troubled. Or you believe in God, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And the disciples are like, what the heck are you talking about? Someone's going to betray you. Peter's going to deny you. This just can't happen. And Peter says, ne never. I mean, I'm, I'll go to my death with you and... And Jesus is like, well, I, I got some bad news for you. Not so. 
Just as the Lord spoke to Jacob at Beersheba, the Lord would speak to us now. Though we, we dwell in a land that is certainly no longer predominantly interested in things of God and His Word. We live in that post-Christian culture now. We, we live in a dark land that, that we now live in and, and reside in, and God is saying, don't worry, I am with you. And that's a great place to be. Because that's what was said of Joseph. From the moment he went into slavery, the Lord was with him. Is the Lord with you and I? Absolutely, right? He says, I will never leave you for nor forsake you. Lo, I will be with you even to the very end of the age. We return to that place where I know who God is. I know what he said. And that informs me. It informs my emotions that I would rightly understand the direction that he would have me go. Furthermore, like Jacob, we're assured that Egypt, this world, is not our permanent dwelling place. Do we know this? I know I wrestle with it. Listen, sometimes I want comfort and ease and just a, a, a simplicity of life. And it's easy to become distracted. I, I, Ryan said it just recently. American Christianity has bought into this idea that somehow the American dream is you know, directly linked to our salvation, that you know, we're gonna, it's going to be just sunshine and puppy dogs if we follow Jesus. But that's just not true. As we've seen, some of the most godly people experience some of the most horrific things in their life, but their faith remained firm. This world is not our dwelling place. We were never intended to reside here permanently. I shouldn't say never. It was until the whole little debacle in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> and after that, God says, you know what? I knew this was going to happen, but I've got a plan to restore it. And it will be much better than the Garden of Eden. As good as it might be here on this earth at times, it pales into comparison to what the Lord is preparing for us. Do we believe that? As bad as it may be, or as bad as it may become, nothing of this world is able to overshadow the joy and glory of what the Lord has reserved for each one of us. Do we believe that? 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18. Paul writes to the church at Corinth, his second letter, and he says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed. How often? Day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal they're only going to be here a little while, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This world is not our home. You see, Joseph and now Jacob, they look to the Lord. 
They fix their eyes upon him. They fix their eyes upon the things not yet seen, the promises of God that were yet to be revealed. That is the truth. There are promises of God that are yet to be revealed for you and I. Amen? And they are amazing. They're beyond our comprehension. Verse 5. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry them. They took their livestock and their property, which they acquired in the land of Canaan, and came to Egypt. Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. So what was the end result of that little conversation that Jacob has with God there on Beersheba? With all the assurance of the Lord, Jacob proceeds to Egypt because he knows the Lord is with him and has clearly provided for him and his family. So with confidence, with confidence, he walks by faith. Jacob did not look back. How do we know that? He took everything with him and he left nothing behind. There was no just-in-case fund buried in Canaan. There was no little remnant of the family, like, well, if this goes badly, at least some of us will survive. No, he was completely dedicated, convinced and confident that God was directing him. Is this the confidence you and I have in God and his promises and in his word for our lives? I mean, I listen, sometimes it's not, I'm admitting, I was like, that's sometimes hard for me to hold on to when life is uncertain. When I've allowed so many things into my life that have now distracted me from the truth. And God wants us to have that confidence that we could look at whatever's going on in our life and say, well, I know where God pointed me and I can leave everything behind or I can pack it all up and go because I know where he's sending me and I know he's true to his word and to his promises. The Lord desires, to sur desires us to surrender our heart, mind, and soul and strength to his plans and his purposes. Believing his plans and purposes as I said before, our, for our good and his greatest glory. Verse 8, and we'll try to wade through a lot of these names here because there's a lot of them. So now these are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. The sons of Reuben, Hanok and Palu and Hezron and Carmi. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, and Jamin, and Ohad, and Yaquin, and Zohar, and Shaul, the son of the Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Er, and Onan, and Shelah, and Perez, and Zerah. But Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, and Puva, Eob, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Zerid and Elon and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Padaram Aram with his daughter Dinah. 
All his sons and his daughters were numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, and Haggi, Shuni, and Hezbon, Eri, and Rodi, and Areli. The sons of Asher, Imna, and Ishva, and Ishvi, and Beriah, and their sister, Sarah. And the sons of Beriah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, who Laban gave to his daughter, Leah. And she bore to Jacob these 16 persons. The sons of Jacob's wife, Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore to him. The sons of Benjamin, Bela and Betcher, and Ashbel, Gera, and Naaman, Ehi and Rosh, Mupin and Hupim and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob. There were 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim, <coughs> the sons of Naphtali, Jazeel and Guni and Jezer and Shilem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Rachel, and she bore these to Jacob. They were seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons, were 62 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. So what's important about all these names? Why do they list them? <clears throat> uh, as Pastor Doug might said, well, it's designed to help you sleep at night. Um, sometimes I wonder, you know, as I read through those. But again, as we look at the context and what preceded that, it testifies to the confidence of Jacob to leave no one behind. It's like, listen, just in case you missed it, I didn't leave one. They all came with me. I entrusted God with my whole family. That's how much I trust him. But it's also a reminder of God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to multiply their descendants so that through them all the earth would be blessed and blessed with the promised Messiah. God is establishing a lineage that we will follow and that you will see all the way in Matthew. That through these broken people, most notably Perez, who is the offspring of Judah and his daughter-in-law, that incestuous relationship, that God would even use broken and fractured families. He's saying, God is saying in his word, there is nothing, there is nothing that is beyond my forgiveness. And I can use everything for my glory. Because God was laying another stone upon the foundation of his plan, which he began in the Garden of Eden when he said to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her seed and uh, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Because here's the reality. Uh, Satan may have been thinking, listen, I, I thought I had them trapped in Canaan. You know, Judah took on a Canaanite wife, really disappointed his family, which led to the whole mess and debacle with, um, with his daughter-in-law. Listen, I mean, already I was working my craft and my my wickedness into this 
this fledgling family that God said he was going to use to bring about the Messiah. Oh, and so now he's like, hey, well, that wasn't working, but now I'm going to move him to Egypt. A completely lost society. A society of warriors that consumed other nations and continue to do it for many, many generations after this. And he may have been thinking, I, I'm taking him right to the place I want him to go, one of the darkest places on earth. But see, God was using what Satan meant for evil to bring about his good. And even Jesus himself would spend a little time in Egypt, wouldn't he? God is setting them there. He's sending them there to Egypt to set them apart, to make them distinct, to make them a strange people. Verse 28, he says, Now he sent Judah before him to Joseph, to point out the way before him to Goshen, and they came to the land of Goshen. Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck, and he wept on his neck a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, that you are still alive. Now this is a big change, because if you think back just a few chapters <clears throat> regarding the request for Benjamin to be brought to Egypt... And Jacob says, oh my gosh, if, if, e if Benjamin goes, this is horrible. Everything is against me. Those were his words. Everything, God and everything is against me. And now he's like, oh, it's all grand and wonderful. He has seen the hand of God. For all of Judah's failures, as we think about this, he, he's leading his family. Think of all his failures. He marries a Canaanite woman. He sins against and then with Tamar. He proposed selling Joseph into slavery, but now he's tasked with leading the family. And this is that beautiful rest, picture of restoration within the family. And we're going to see the reason why he's chosen and not his older brothers. Because there's some, some dysfunction happening there too. But it's this restoration, but it's also this picture of reconciliation between Judah and Joseph. That he would be the one to go before the family. That he was chosen to lead speaks volumes about how Jacob now felt toward his older sons, specifically Judah. But it also demonstrates the nature of God's forgiveness <clears throat> towards you and me. Can we do some pretty horrible things? Yeah. Is it more than God can forgive? No. All we need to do is look at a few of our forefathers. David. Paul. They did some pretty awful things, and yet they became pillars. People that the Lord said, this is a man after my own heart of Paul, who would later write most of the New Testament. There is no sin so great as to overcome the grace and mercy of the Lord. 
when he saves us, his promises and blessings are irrevocable. Not just to you and me, but to his people, to his people Israel. He still has promises to fulfill with them. He, Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 and 28. He said, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. For just as written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant, my contract with them. When I take away their sins, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of who? The fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And we should hold on to that. Despite their disobedience and even rejection, of Jesus as the Messiah, the Lord promised to preserve what? A righteous remnant of them. Today, the Lord is still fulfilling his promises to Abraham that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. We as Gentiles are the fruit of that. But see here in Genesis chapter 46, the foundation is being laid. Can you... I mean, I can't imagine living in those days, even knowing, thinking about back to Abraham, knowing that his descendants would spend 400 years in captivity. I, I just got to believe Abraham's like, man, I'm glad I'm not going to live during that time. You know, it's like a little relief. But for the blessings to come, God needed to separate his people from the corrupting effects of the Canaanites and also the Egyptian culture of that time. And this is accomplished in part by the famine, but also through Egyptian culture. Let's read with me. Verse 31, Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and I will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me, and the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation, you'll say to him, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. So what is the history here? Uh, this is, I, I, I kind of geek out on this stuff. <laughs> I love history, so digging into this was super fun uh, today. Um, the Egyptians were predominantly an agrarian culture, an agricultural society. They were predominantly... Um, vegetarian at that time, which, which is really interesting. Uh, there was an article written, a science article written in 2014, I think it was like May of 2014, um, where scientists in France did studies on a whole host of Egyptian mummies uh, from several different dynasties and trying to determine if they, if they could what their diet predominantly dis, uh, consisted of. And so they did a bunch of these carbon testings on the bones and there's certain carbon elements that we get from certain foods that are deposited into our bones. Again, bear with me. It's a little bit of geek out here on science and history. Um, but what they discovered is that ent almost entirely it was plant-based carbon. 
which goes in line with their religious practices of that time. So their, their culture, their economy, and religion centered and rested primarily upon farming, so much so that the shepherds or keepers of livestock were seen as, as we read, detestable or an abomination. So it's centered also around the Hebrew religious sacrifices. There's this contrast that's happening here. The Hebrew religious practices, they would raise these animals, but then they would offer them in sacrifice to their God and then eat them, a portion of them. As one theologian stated in one of these articles, sheep and rams were sacred to the Egyptian god Ammon, and cows were sacred to Hathor. The Egyptian bull god Apis was considered a manifestation of the king, as bulls were the symbols of strength and fertility, qualities that are closely linked with the kingship. The Egyptians also worshipped the pagan deity Gnum, which was rep represented a man as a man with a ram's head. So the idea of eating the relatives of their gods was detestable, which is, to us, seems ludicrous. But nonetheless, that was their practice. And here the Hebrew people ate sheep and cattle. So again, the Lord is taking them out of Canaan, removing them from one clearly corrupting influence, but places them in the land of Goshen. Why Goshen? At that time, it was one of the least populated areas of Egypt. Why? Because it was predominantly a bunch of shepherds. And the Egyptians didn't want to go there. So God, in his sovereign knowledge, says, great, that's where I'm going to put them. They'll kind of be separated from the rest of Egyptian society because the Egyptians don't really want to have anything to do with them. And we saw that earlier in chapter, I think it's 43 or 44, where it says that the Egyptians didn't eat with Hebrews. They even separated themselves from Joseph because he was a Hebrew. But he does this to preserve them. He made them to be a peculiar and strange people in a strange land. Does that sound familiar? He did this with you and I. When he opened our eyes to see our sins and we responded with humility and surrender, in that moment, it says he set us apart. 2 Timothy 2, 21, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house. Do we seize ourselves as set apart and useful in the master's house? Are we surrendering to that daily? We live in a culture that often finds our practices, our beliefs, our values, our faith detestable and an abomination. How do we respond? Because here's the reality. We serve one God in three persons. They look at this and say, this makes no sense. We serve one God in three persons. We see unseen things. We conquer by yielding. We're slaves of Christ, yet free. We find rest while wearing a yoke. We are only able to reign while serving. We become great when we're small. We are exalted when we're humble. 
We are wise when we become foolish for the name of Jesus. We find strength when we admit our weaknesses. We triumph through defeat. We discover victory by acknowledging our failures, and we live by dying. God did a great job of setting us apart and making us a peculiar people, odious and detestable to a world that would reject him. But as the scripture says, to some who are looking for life, we are the fragrant aroma of Christ leading to life. But to those who are perishing and rejecting him, says, we are the stench of death. And so God separates the people out so that he might preserve and raise them up. That is his plan. To raise them up, to increase their number. Just as the entire nation of Israel experienced a time of trial and testing, so too you and I are destined for trials and testing, and we do not know how long that will be and how difficult it may be. But we can always pause, return to the truth, remember who Jesus is and who the, the nature of the Father, and we can find peace and rest in any chaos. Amen? The purpose is to perfect and preserve us for a future glory to be revealed according to his timing. And until then, may we be confident in what the Lord has shown, in, shown us in his promises, his faithfulness, and his gracious love. As, as we learned, and I just want to recap this, as we learned from 1 Peter 1.13 last Wednesday, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's study in the book of Genesis. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit us for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you'll join us next week as we continue in our study together.